Welcome to Optimal Health Uncovered. We are a group of health and wellness professionals in the New York metropolitan area where our mission is to empower you to live better. From specific injuries to general fitness trends, diets to sleep habits, our group of specialists are dedicated to bringing you the latest evidence-based research on the topics that matter most. Welcome to this session of Optimal Health Uncovered. Welcome to another episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. I'm Todd. And I'm Mike. And today's topic is going to be functional dry needling. Why don't you give us a little background on how you got interested in functional dry needling and how you trained and you know what's needed to become a specialist in this area? I got certified by a group called Kineticor, which is based out of Colorado. That was probably about eight years ago. Um, so that's kind of my background in the training process, and I've gone through subsequent courses with them. Uh, what got me interested in the first place is I got dry needled for the first time probably nine to ten years ago. I think I was in residency at the time, dealing with a shoulder issue, just chronic tightness and stiffness, um, and that helped to kind of help clear it up at the time. And it was just very interesting is unlike anything that I've ever felt before and the results are fairly immediate and just allowed other aspects of what I was doing, the stretching, the exercises that were really important as well in getting, getting that shoulder back and fixed. Um, it allowed those to go a lot smoother lot with a lot less pain. So that's what first got me interested in it. And then it's been incorporated into my practice, you know, probably for the better part of eight years now. What I've seen in clinical settings is We've seen a lot more people doing functional dry needling as a technique that's used uh, as part of their therapy treatments. What's the process like getting certified? Is it the same now as it was eight years ago or is it advanced a little bit? So it's advanced in this, the sense that there's more accrediting bodies out there. Um, so it's kind of expanded quite a bit as, as an industry and as a business. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. So when I got certified, there's probably two to three groups in the United States that were certifying people in dry needling. Now it's been around since the eighties in this country, um, even longer than that, um, you know, in Eastern Europe. And then obviously there's some derivations from acupuncture dating back centuries. So it's not anything that's new, but you know, in physical therapy practice, it certainly was a little bit more novel, um, when I was kind of coming up. So that was maybe two to three certifying bodies. Now there's, there's a lot more than that. Um, some better than others, some more legitimate than others. And I won't go into any specific names. Um, it's become at, in some institutions, an entry level skill, um, for some, um, some physical therapists coming out and graduating. Uh, I don't think that that's the best thing. And, and I'm the biggest advocate of dry needling and that you could probably find. I, I love it. I think it's a great tool, but I do think that you have to develop your craft a lot more before you're going to go sticking needles in people. So it, in some institutions, they, they're tre treating um, their, they're training their um, young physical therapist, their student physical therapist in dry needling. And I don't think that that's the best way to go. Uh, I think you have to develop a rapport with patients. You have to treat with other mechanisms first. I think it's kind of jumping the gun. So it's kind of expanded. I'd like to see it shrink a little bit in terms of, of where it is now. Um, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole puzzle as we'll discuss. So it's, it's part of a robust treatment plan. So the concern with, with someone just going into their practice with this in their toolbox and really focusing on just this too early is that that's kind of all that they can end up doing. So that that's kind of why I'm an advocate for waiting, you know, two, three years into your practice, developing some clinical hours before you go and get certified. Functional dry needling. Is it just for physical therapists or are there other practitioners that are using the technique? Yeah. So dry needling can be done by, um, a lot of medical professionals. It's done by physicians. It's done by chiropractors, physical therapists. 
Um, I'm sure there's some other medical practitioners doing it as well, but those are your main individuals doing it. Um, so you do need a medical background, depending on the certifying agency, they may you know, require one license or another, but there's, and, and some acupuncturists have shifted and done some more dry needling and some physical therapists have gone and got, you know, accredited and went to school for traditional acupuncture. So there's a lot of hybrids and crossing uh, of professional lines there. But the delineating thing is I, you know, we'll talk about, you know, what dry needling is and how it is different from acupuncture. And you can't say that you're doing acupuncture or vice versa, just because the, the methodologies are completely different. Great. That's a good lead in. So let's dig into the, the question of what is dry needling? So the simple answer, it's, it's the insertion of a fine monofilament needle into the soft tissues of the body. Um, in physical therapy and with, with the model that I'm trained in and most physical therapists are trained in, it's a trigger point model, which means that that needle is going into the muscle and the myotendinous tissue. Um, so it's inserted in there and what happens is a response, which I'll talk about, which is pretty robust. The name dry needling comes from the fact that there's no medication used in, in the needle. So no one calls you know a, an injection otherwise a wet needle, but what a quote unquote wet needle would be is if someone gets a lidocaine injection or a cortisone injection, that's a different needle. That's a gauge needle with a bore on it, which kind of is, is different length, different depth of, of penetration, and um, it's just kind of a different way to go about it. So dry needling, the similarity between acupuncture, one of them is that it uses more or less the same needles. It's those thin monofilament needles. Now, why would someone use dry needling? You know, you spoke earlier about being part of a treatment regimen. Why would a practitioner choose to use dry needling? So, okay. So let's see where, where we start here. So I think if there's a, if there's pain, if there's connect, if there's soft tissue disruption, then you can consider dry needling. You can kind of start there. So dry needling can have an analgesic effect uh, on most tissues in the body. But if someone's having raging arthritic pain, that's really stemming from the joint, dry needling may not be my first go-to. If they're having around that arthritic joint muscle trigger points in the quad or the hamstring, then that would be part of my, my treatment approach there. So, you know, you had to avoid, you know, getting a hammer and everything becoming a nail. So really it's, if there's a presence of painful trigger points, active trigger points, that's creating pain in around the area that your patient's reporting discomfort, then that's something you would consider uh, for dry needling. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between dry needling and acupuncture, that question comes up a lot. Is dry needling the same as acupuncture? Sure. That's a very common question. It, it's not. Um, it's different both in theory and in, and in practice. So um, I'm not an expert in acupuncture, but just if you're going to put needles in someone, you have to be prepared to kind of answer this question. So I'll give you the general answer that I give to patients, physicians, and otherwise. So traditional Chinese acupuncture it uses the same needle type insertion, uh, but they do it for a completely different purpose and a different methodology. They do so for the purpose of balancing uh, qi or the flow of energy. Uh, and those that flow of energy is believed to go through specific pathways in the body called meridians. Um, dry needling is based more on kind of a Western trigger point model where there, we know that trigger points exist in a muscle. We'll talk, you know, briefly about what those are and how they can create pain here in a second. But we know that they exist, and we go, we search out those trigger points that are creating pain, insert the monofilament needle into them, create an, an a trigger point response or a um, twitch response, I should say, and that response, that kind of mini spasm in the muscle, is what elicitates a lot of the positive effects. So, different in why you do it, and then the 
in that theory, the, the practice of, of what you do with the needle is a little different in that we're going a depth that is required to get into the muscle. So if I'm going into the quadriceps, for example, I'm going to go into the actual substance of the quadriceps. Typically acupuncture, you're focusing the needles in or around these meridians where the depth of penetration of the needle is more on the skin, um, or not as deep into the tissue. I always found it interesting uh, with the acupuncture, which I used to do probably 10 15 years ago for uh, low back, chronic low back issues that would become acute. I'd hit it with some acupuncture. The fact that they'd put a needle in my leg to address stuff going on uh, on in my back. So obviously following the meridians. Uh, If we were talking about dry needling for, say, acute low back pain, would that also have uh, needles that would be lower down in the extremity or up in the upper extremities, or would it focus more on the actual area uh, around the low back musculature? It's going to typically focus a little bit more around the area if you make kind of a generalization. So if that if there was radiating pain from, say, a lumbar radiculopathy, a nerve root irritation that goes down the leg, I may then go needle the areas in around the leg that are, are symptomatic because when you have nerve input down the leg over and over again, the hamstring muscles may be reactive to that and you may develop trigger points, but I'm not going there based on energy flow or anything like that. So the general answer is it's a little bit more focused to where the primary source of pain is. So in this example, in the low back, but there could be circumstances where we go kind of above and the below the joint and kind of focus on regional interdependence, but not, not as much as, as acupuncture. Talk to me a little bit more about the depth of penetration because I find that interesting. Uh, the needle's the same, monofilament, ligaments. Uh, 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 what is the depth? Is there is it twice as deep as the other as an acupuncture needle, or does it depend specifically on the trigger point? Uh, that's interesting that it, there's a, a, a difference in the depth. So it depends on multiple things. So from again, so there's some hybrids out there and there's some acupuncturists which are not just putting needles in the surface of the skin. They may be going a little bit deeper um, for different different purposes. So again, this is a bit of a generalization, but for the most part, you know, we're going to try to penetrate a trigger point, which is just a taut band of tissue in the muscle that is creating problems, creating pain, uh, creating loss of kind of blood flow to the area and has a lot of inflammatory markers and mediators around there, which we'll talk about briefly. In a, in a few minutes here. So if you're going into that area, you're going to have to penetrate the needle um, into the tissue to create that twitch response. So I, I can't tell you how many millimeters more, but it's, it's deeper in, again, a general answer, typically deeper than traditional acupuncture. Big question here. Is it effective? This dry needling technique that's used so often. Yeah. Yeah. So it is effective. And we'll talk about, we'll talk now, I guess, briefly just about the research. So uh, so research as a whole is all over the place. It's, it's as I said, a little bit more novel than some other treatments that have been out there a little bit longer. And what's considered dry needling out there in the research is anything with a needle. So it's a little, you have to really, and the research has tried to do this, is really tease out what exactly you're studying. So study A may be looking at dry needling, but it actually may be more of an acupuncture derivative. Study B may be looking at dry needling, but it actually is a use of a gauge needle by a physician who's going into an area, but not injecting medicine. They're just comparing, okay, if I go into your upper trapezius with lidocaine or without lidocaine, what's more effective? They'll call the non-application of that lidocaine, the, the dry needling, but that's not really the dry needling that I'm talking about. It's a completely different needle. So my point is it's all over the place in terms of substantiating it. And that's why, and I've had talked to different physicians where they're like, well, there's not a ton of randomized control trials that are out there. I'm like, well, 
there, there is, you just have to kind of tease them out a little bit and they're right as a whole. If you look at like a Cochrane review on dry needling, it's basically limited to minimal to moderate evidence that it's um, supporting it as a whole, but it's the same way, same point where research was for low back pain and physical therapy, like in the nineties and early two thousands is we were in the same position. What they called physical therapy wasn't consistent throughout, you know, people were doing, some people were doing just doing traction. Some people were just doing exercise. Some people were just doing McKenzie exercises. So it's a little bit, we have a long ways to go from a research standpoint, but as a whole, if you take the research for soft tissue injuries, so muscle sprains, um, for lumbar and low back pain, um, there's been some good high quality randomized control trials that have shown, shown good short-term and moderate term effects. Uh, long-term as you compare like years out, there's no great data to say, you know, this is leading to a lasting effect for forever. Um, and it's, it's hard to parcel out, you know, because as a therapist, I'm not just going to do dry needling with my patient and then just leave them. So some of the studies just look at, you know, the application of dry needling plus a standard regimen and some look at it at them just in isolation. So it's a long winded answer, but obviously I'm biased. It, I think it is effective. I think the research is bearing out as a whole that it is uh, effective in the short term at helping to remediate pain and is a piece of your clinical picture. But I think also the research, if you're critical, will also say it shouldn't be a standalone. It's not supported as a standalone and it's not going to lead to long, meaningful outcomes in the long term if you're just doing needling. So I'd encourage both practitioners and then patients listening to this that it should be part of what you do, not all of what you do. Thanks for clearing that up because I've received that question from physicians over the last couple of years as therapists have started to use this technique a little bit more often. And it's like anything uh, in healthcare or medicine. It, it takes time for these studies to catch up, uh, you know, but it's not just using dry needling. It's a combination and a really comprehensive approach and the clinical reasoning and processing on what you do for an individual client is different and picking your modality appropriately. So that clears it up. Talk to me a little bit about uh, what actually happens in the myofascial system when there's a trigger point present. Can we get into the science a little bit more, uh, dig a little deeper with that? Sure. So I think first let's define what a trigger point is. And there's actually some differences in opinion in terms of the definition. So it's a taut band within a muscle um, that taut band Typically, if you're poking on it or palpating it, will refer pain to another area. So that's a true active trigger point. It's a area where there's a top band in a muscle which sends signals elsewhere. Um, there's other, you know, we all have them. You can poke an area and there's just point tenderness in that area. That could be from muscle soreness. That could be from different things. That's not necessarily a trigger point. If it's creating a disproportionate amount of pain that's kind of referring around that, that's what I would consider uh, an, an active trigger point. So that's just a basic definition of it. But when you dig in a little bit deeper as to what's present in a trigger point, which I think it's necessary to do so to really understand what dry needling does. In a trigger point, there's um, different chemicals that are that are present versus just a normal muscle tissue. So what causes a trigger point is an abnormal amount of a substance or a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. So basically acetylcholine is responsible for creating a lot of smooth muscle contraction and a lot of connective uh, tissue to contract. So your muscle and your nerves kind of interface with one another at something called an end plate. So I'm, I'm trying not to get too weedy, but I just want to give a general no, that's good. background. So in order for something to contract at the motor end plate, there has to be an electrical signal. Acetylcholine is what helps to create that electrical signal. So if you have an over-release of acetylcholine, basically you're telling that muscle at a subconscious level that it's kind of always on. 
So you're sitting at your desk, you're sitting at your computer, you have this knot in your upper trapezius, for example, basically there's, that's a chemical process. You can't just go in and stretch that without doing something to help change that chemical process. And that therein lies the, the effect of dry needling. So that is one thing that's present in the muscle that's creating that taut band. Over time, if that goes on for longer than sometimes even you know a few minutes to a few days, that muscle could actually lose its length. The, the contractile elements of that muscle can shorten, right? So then the muscle becomes a little bit shorter. That happens over time. There's decreased circulation to that muscle. So now it's not getting good uh, oxygenation, good blood flow to the area. And if you do, and studies have done this, a biopsy of an active trigger point and looked at the chemical elements in there, there's a lot of the same chemicals that are present in inflammation. So substances like prostaglandin, cytokines, kind of fancy words, but inflammatory markers are present in there. Um, so that's kind of what ha is happening at the microscopic level. At the macroscopic level, patients presenting with, hey, this thing, I, it's a knot, I poke it, it hurts, I, I press here, it creates referral of pain into this area. That's that's kind of what the patient is is experiencing. That happens over time, and you know they just know it as a stiff, painful shoulder, knee, et cetera. Um, so with dry needling, does well, any questions? On, well, on I, I like the way you're explaining it because from a patient perspective, they just want to know why it's there. You under, you explaining a little bit about the inflammatory process and the uh, what's happening at the motor end, end plate is uh, important for them to understand and how that muscle contraction is occurring and why they're having pain. A uh, question I might have is some people might say, should I go get a massage or... How do, if they haven't heard of dry needling, how do you approach it, whether it should be a massage, moist heat, cold, dry needling? How do you choose the modality that's most appropriate? So one, what are you most comfortable with? Has massage worked for you in the past? So there, there's different aspects of clinical evidence, right? Patient experience and, and previous experience of patients is ex exceptionally valuable. So if you've had success with massage releasing trigger points, absolutely, that's something that you can certainly go and do. And that's something that I recommend and support as well. And so it's not one or the other, it's really what's best for that individual at one time. Um, if I'm focusing on a targeted trigger point, I think the quickest and easiest way to address that trigger point is to go in there and create a stimulus that is so different um, that it forces the nervous system to kind of relax that muscle. That's the way I look at dry needling. And it gets very, and doing prep for this podcast, I, I tried hard not to go overboard because it, it just gets really down the wormhole a little bit. So, you know, the needle doesn't just, you know, cause this twisted response and release the muscle. There's a different sensation to those peripheral nerve fibers in around that trigger point that kind of give information to the, the brain and, and spinal cord that help it to relax. That stimulus could be me dinging with my thumb. It could be a massage therapist uh, creating a stimulus with, with their hands. It could be, you know, a trigger point gun. So that's why all these methodologies work. Um, but where dry needling tends to work is where I've kind of tried a lot of those and it hasn't worked. It feels like it doesn't get deep enough. Um, and this actually can, we can actually penetrate into the trigger point itself. Or if someone's like, Hey, I got to be on court in a couple of minutes. You know, I can't go through an hour long massage, which is going to kind of really fatigue me. That may be an area for dry needling. So I think it's a little bit quicker, it's a little bit more direct and, and to the point, but it's not for everybody because not everyone's going to want to get poked with a needle. Yeah. That was another question I had that I'll hold for a second. But the question that came to mind is, as you're explaining here is you release the trigger point, whether it's through massage, whether it's through dry needling, what's the next step in preventing that trigger point from coming back? 
Yeah. So most, my immediate next step is, is typically some deep pressure to the area. So I, I do some dry needling. I get my hands on there. I put a little deep pressure to there. I'm just creating a different stimulus. I'm trying to reeducate the peripheral nerve endings around that area that, Hey, this, this doesn't have to be the way that it's been for a couple months. So a little bit deep pressure, light, even some light massage right afterwards. Then I try to stre- have the individual stretch that right afterwards. So if you try to stretch onto a trigger point or onto a knot, you know, the analogy that I, I learned from some individuals, you know, that I mentored with is like, if you have a knot in the middle of a rope, um, you go to try and stretch both ends of the rope, the knot gets tighter, right? So that's kind of like a trigger point. So what the needle does is it releases the knot. So then the stretch can be more effective at re- restoring normal normalcy or length to that tissue. So I like to do stretch right after and then activate muscles in or around there that are going to support it. So if we use the example of say, your upper trap, right? So I may do just some light scapular exercises, um, some exercises to get the serratus anterior going, some things to support that area so that that muscle isn't just released and then left to function. Because sometimes you have to retrain it to, to work. If it's been in this chronic state of shortening, can't expect to just go out and work. And that's also why if, if you're critical of some of the studies out there, they'll do needling and then they'll retest something right away. I think there needs to be needling some, you know, light manual work thereafter, some stretching and then appropriate reactivation before we expect that muscle just to come back to a normal state. Using the muscle, getting the muscle used to the, the, the normal state that it was in. The other question I had, uh, is fear of needles, right? Are there patients that you want to approach this and you think, uh, dry needling is going to be appropriate for them because they've tried the massage and they've tried the other modalities, but they're just afraid of needles. What's your uh, explanation to the patient at that point to, to calm them a little bit and let them know that it's going to be safe for them? Yeah. So at the end of the day, if someone is you know deathly afraid of needles, this isn't, this isn't the thing for them, right? Acupuncture, dry needling, anything that involves needles will probably not be something that gives them comfort or helps to create a therapeutic effect. So it, there's different levels of that. No one, not very few people like needles. So the first explanation is this, this could be different from the needles you've experienced in the past. So I explained the difference between a typical gauge needle that a physician would use for different injections or blood work, et cetera, versus this needle and how it feels different. So a typical gauge needle has a little bit of a hole in the middle. That's why you bleed. It kind of bores out the skin. So there in lies why it's a little bit more painful. The monofilament needle, it, it more pushes tissue you know, to the side. It can definitely penetrate different areas and create some pain, but it definitely is much more tolerable. Anybody who's had dry needling or acupuncture will tell you that the, the insertion of the needle really doesn't hurt. Uh, it could be some of, of how it affects the body thereafter that can create some of the discomfort. So I explain the difference. I go through you know, all the risks and we'll talk about some others here. Um, and if someone's not comfortable, it's not, it's not the thing for them. Again, that's why you have to have multiple tools in your toolbox. If it's all that you do, then you know that's, that's not the way to go. Yeah, I agree. When the acupuncture needle or the dry needling, when that needle's inserted, it's not really that point that hurts. It's when you're really finding the trigger point and releasing the trigger point that you'll have a little discomfort. Right. All right. What kind of conditions uh, do you normally use dry needling to treat? Any condition. So the presence of an active trigger point that is, I feel is fitting into their clinical picture of pain, that that's where I'll, I'll intervene with dry needling. So that could be a muscle injury, like a sprain, uh, like a strain type injury. It could be a ligamentous injury where there's some soft tissue disruption around there. And I'm going to dry needle, um, any myofascial pain syndrome, um, tendinopathy. So we haven't talked much about the tendon, but there is, and we've really only talked about just the trigger point model of dry needling, which is kind of what what most of us here at, at performance or most of us in physical therapy tend to do, but 
um, there is some great research for going into a tendon issue and, and kind of penetrating the needle repetitively in the tendon to create a local bleeding response. So that'll happen sometimes in physical therapy practice, but that'll also happen um, more with um, with doctors going in and, and creating that effect versus, say, a PRP. And there'll, there'll be some studies comparing that. So tendon injury, injuries as well, uh, low back pain, uh, temporal mandibular disorder, if it, it's re, if it's related to the muscles specifically, like the masseter muscle, maybe one uh, that you would go in a needle men's and women's health issues that a lot of uh, issues with, with, you know, stress incontinence, things like that, where those muscles can be kind of hypertonic and, and painful. Um, there's definitely different areas. Um, so it's hard to answer, but if, if there's a muscle that needs to be intervened and it's related to the clinical picture of pain, it could be anything from arthritis to a sprain, a strain injury, the dry needling could be effective, but you know, it, I want to avoid saying it's effective for X, Y, or Z conditions because it's more the mechanism by which it's working, which is treating the muscles around there. Can we go back a little bit? You talked about tendinopathy and dealing with needling of a tendon. And this is something that for years physicians have done to stimulate blood flow in an area. Talk to me about what your thought is and how often you use uh, the dry needling in that form. So I don't use dry needling for, I, I have tried it in, in the past. It's, it's hard to substantiate how much of a bleeding response I'm, I'm creating. So I tend to, if I'm doing say lateral elbow pain, you know, in, in your example, if someone's dealing with say a, a tennis elbow and they're getting discomfort in the muscle and the tendon around there, um, I'm probably going to treat the muscle more so than I'm going to go in and perforate the tendon. I may do that a little bit. Um, but really, if someone is is having a true tendinopathy where they go on an ultrasound or an MRI and they're having tendon disruption and what we call a tendinosis, which is you know where there's some scar tissue accumulation and some micro tears in the tendon, they're probably better suited, in my opinion, to go have some needling done under ultrasound by a physician. Typically, a physiatrist would do that or a sports medicine physician. And he would perforate that needle exactly where it needs to be perforated and create that bleeding response. So I have, um, I can't say messed around with it, but I have tried it before in my career. I just felt like, you know, I wasn't as precise as I wanted to be. It does create a little bit of pain when you're perforating tendon. And I don't know, you know, how much of a bleeding response I'm creating. So I think there's individuals who could be a little bit more precise with it. So um, in my practice, I'm not using it for um, tendinopathies to needle the tendon itself. But if that tendinopathy presents with a muscle trigger point around it, which it typically does, the muscles around that tendon become hypertonic and painful and create an abnormal force distribution on that tendon, then I'm certainly going to treat the muscle, but that's just my, my opinion on it. There is some good studies for it, but as I said, you have to tease out what's the needling that, that may, maybe I do or a physical therapist does versus the needling that would be done by a physician with a bore gauge needle. No, that's a great explanation. And to your point of just needling the muscle, releasing the muscle, taking the tension off of the tendon unit. Uh, what are the risks? Are there any risks involved, uh, with dry needling that, uh, clients should be concerned about? Yeah. So for the most part, the risks are very minimal. Usually you'll just experience a muscle soreness following dry needling. There certainly can be bruising in the area. Um, if, if we were to hit a, a superficial blood vessel, you know, there could be some bleeding response. That's, that's kind of par for the course with any needles. The biggest complication is a pneumothorax, which is when, and if that needle were to penetrate into the lung, into the lung pleura, it could collapse the lung inside of the chest wall. So it sounds extremely serious, is extremely serious, happens in 0.01% of cases or less, depending on which study you read. And really that would be needling only in the lung field. So basically a chest wall, thorax, low back, uh, mid back. Um, and that having done it for eight years, you know, number one, you want to go to an individual who would be certified to treat in that area. That's not, you know, a level one type certification. Uh, and it really would have to be someone who is either not, 
proficient in doing what they're doing chooses a, a needle that is far too long um, and is maybe you know improper technique more so than anything. So it, it is rare, but it's one that we have someone sign a waiver that that could be something they experience if we're needling in that area. So it's something that's everyone needs to be aware of because um, it is a serious complication. That being said, if it were to happen, you know those the small hole that's created heals itself. Typically, as a clinician, you would go with the individual to the ER, and that would be kind of remediated within a day day's time. They would feel some shortness of breath during the time, but knock on wood hasn't happened, you know, in my practice. And I think it could be completely avoided uh, if individuals are doing the right thing, appropriate needle selection, appropriate training, uh, and knowing what you're doing. A lot of great information today. Uh, any take home, uh, nuggets that we can leave our audience with regarding dry needling? It is part of the treatment, not the whole treatment. And I think that's, I say that time and again, but it's the biggest thing. Cause you know, as someone who performs dry needling and, is, and is, is passionate about it to have some conversation individuals that have maybe just had dry needling and it hasn't worked or like, Oh, this doesn't, this doesn't, this isn't an effective treatment because you know, this research looked at this, right? So all those problems typically lie with, I just got dry needling and it wasn't effective. I didn't do any type of appropriate stretching, strengthening around it. It was, it was kind of a standalone treatment and the research can kind of look at, at, at similarity there to say, okay, it wasn't part of a standard physical therapy regimen like it needed to be. Most of the times when that is the case, the research does support dry needling. So it's part of the picture, whether you're a patient or a clinician, know that it can help certainly reduce pain, uh, improve range of motion, improve quality of life and function if you have the appropriate uh, individual doing it and if you have the appropriate symptoms around an, an active trigger point, but it's not a standalone. I think that's a, a, a great answer and a great take home point of probably most things that we do, you know, making them very evaluation based and individual uh, individualized. So it's not just someone saying, oh, can I try this modality? It's something that where you're evaluating your uh, individual client and seeing what's best. And it's usually not just one thing. Mike, this has been a, a great session today as far as information. And we, you dug deep on a lot of uh, interesting uh, points about dry needling comparison to acupuncture, the types of needles. I think uh, it's definitely very informative. Uh, and thanks for, uh, you know, sharing this uh, information with us today. Of course. I hope it was helpful. Thank you to our listening audience for joining us again for another episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. If you have questions for us or want to hear about something specific in an upcoming episode, send an email to podcast at performance-pt.com and be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more tips on optimal health. Until next time, be well.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Optimal Health Uncovered. If you have questions for us or want to hear about something specific in an upcoming episode, send an email to podcast at performance-pt.com and be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for more tips on optimal health. Until next time, be well.